at Exodus chapter 19, starting from verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and there they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for all the people. You shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, 
for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits round the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. That's Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, Often on a Saturday night, my wife Hannah and I will sit down to watch a film. And I hope that you won't judge me too much if I tell you that this Saturday we watched a film called How to Train Your Dragon. Just in case you haven't seen it, the story takes place on an island inhabited by Vikings who spend their days trying to fend off an army of invading dragons. And the plot explores two different philosophies for their self-protection. You might be thinking I've overthought this film somewhat. On the one hand, there are the traditionalists led by Stoic, the island's chief. And his approach is basically just try harder. Keep fighting the dragons like we've always done, but with more firepower, more ammunition, more aggression. The only problem is it doesn't work. The harder Stoic tries, the bigger the dragons come back, stronger than before. On the other hand, it's Hiccup, his son, uh, who discovers in the course of the film that there is a better way. Instead of fighting dragons, you can train dragons. And of course, that proves to be the winning formula. This evening, we're thinking not so much about how to train your dragon as about how to train your life, your desires, your deeds. Uh, It's a question which even non-Christians are asking. Just in the last few weeks, several people who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus have said things to me like, How do I stop putting off the things that I know are good for me? Why can't I break free of my own destructive habits? And as I'm sure you know, the internet is awash with videos trying to tell you how to stop wasting your life, how to take back control of your time, how to train yourself to be more self-controlled. It's also a question which, as Christians, we should be asking. We saw last week, that as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we're called to live self-controlled lives that adorn the gospel. And of course, we won't do that perfectly in this life. Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin, and he's broken sin's power to condemn us. But the presence of sin will remain with us until he comes again. And yet that doesn't mean that we can't make any progress towards godliness in this life. We can We must. So how? How do you train your life, your desires, 
your deeds. Like the Vikings in How to Train Your Dragon, the false teachers on Crete had a very simple answer. Just try harder. Get circumcised. Avoid certain foods. Don't get married. More religion, more rules, more effort. And there are plenty of people preaching the same thing today. In the religious world, that's what so much teaching so often boils down to. Just do more. Go to mass. Pray five times a day. Go on pilgrimage. Give more money. Get ordained. And in the secular world, it's no different. Go and watch one of those YouTube videos on the internet about how to become more self-controlled. And all they'll give you is a long list of new rules to keep. Get up early. Have a cold shower. Go to the gym. Delete your social media. Practice meditation. Just try harder, won't you? The problem is it doesn't work. We all think we can do it, don't we? We all want to believe that really we can fix ourselves. That if we just try a bit harder, we'll be able to be self-controlled. But it doesn't work. The false teachers in Titus were just as godless as the rest of Crete. And often so are religious people today. All those rules, all those regulations, all those routines... They might give you a boost in the short term for a day or a week or maybe a month. But they don't produce lasting change, long-term change. After a while, we all fall back into the same old habits, the same old sins. But what if we didn't have to? What if there was a better way? A way for you to train your habits to train your life like Hiccup and his dragon. A way that didn't just leave you to try harder on your own. One that produced real transformation. One that enabled real change. The wonderful news of this passage is that there is. And its name is grace. Look down with me at verse 11 of our reading. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. A few weeks ago, I went to look around HMS Belfast down by London Bridge. And as I was looking around the bottom deck of this enormous battleship, I found myself in the boiler room, looking at its enormous 82,000 horsepower engine. And this passage this evening is a little bit like that. The word for in verse 11 tells us that everything Paul says in these verses serves as an engine room for the godly life described in 2, 1 to 10. This is the turbocharged V8 under the bonnet of the transformed Christian household. And it runs on grace. Verse 11 again, for the grace of God has appeared. God's grace means his free, unmerited favor towards those who believe in Jesus. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. It's unmerited. Nothing you do could ever deserve it or pay God back for it. It secures God's favor. It's the riches of his kingdom at the expense of his son. It means forgiveness when we deserve condemnation. 
Relationship when we deserve wrath. Life when we deserve death. And in Jesus, Paul says, God's grace has appeared. It's been revealed. It's been made manifest. Notice that it doesn't say the grace of God has arrived. As if to imply that God somehow wasn't gracious before and now he is. Because in reality, God has always been gracious. Think of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God has always been gracious. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, God's grace was hidden. It wasn't clear to everyone. Those words in Exodus 34 were spoken only to Moses. And even he couldn't see God's face. But now in Jesus, Paul says, God has revealed his grace for all to see. How? Verse 11. By bringing salvation for all people. That is, all people without distinction, not all people without exception. Every kind of person, not every single person. I grew up not far from the jewellery quarter in Birmingham, where I think something like 40% of all the jewellery in the UK is made. And as I walked those shop-laden streets as a young brummy lad, every jeweller would have this huge display case filled with diamonds and rubies and sapphires, all of them lit up in dazzling white light. And Paul says that in the same way, like one of those shop windows, the Lord Jesus has put the grace of God on display by dying on the cross, by taking all of our sins, by bringing salvation to all people, Jew and Gentile, black and white, gay and straight, if they trust in Jesus. Do you see what the false teachers on Crete were getting so wrong? By telling people to keep more rules, to to go and get circumcised, to just try harder, they were acting as if God's grace was still hidden. As if we were still in Old Testament times and God hadn't already made known his salvation for all to see. They were telling people to do, do, do when God had already said done in Jesus you might have guessed from my trip to HMS Belfast that I'm, I'm a little bit of a World War II history nerd. And one of my favorite facts about World War II is this Japanese soldier who refused to believe that the war had finished in 1945. His name was Hiru Inoda, and he kept fighting in the end in the Filipino jungle for almost 29 years after the conclusion of the war. And that's what anyone who thinks they can get right with God if they just try harder is like. Fighting and struggling to justify themselves when the war's already over. Because God has won it for us. Striving and trying to make themselves pure when God has already made us perfect in the Lord Jesus. And maybe you're here this afternoon and that's exactly what you've been trying to do toiling away, trying to live a good life, but deep down you know you can't. Maybe you feel weighed down by all those times that you've tried and failed. 
like you're dirty and you don't know how to get clean, like you're a mess and you don't know who could love you. But do you know that God does? He loves you more than you could imagine. And do you know that God can? He sent his son to wash you whiter than snow. And it's all for free. Because the grace of God has appeared. Of course, some of you might be thinking, well, great. I guess if it's all for free, we don't need to bother with the godliness then, do we? And to you, Paul says, not so fast. Because the grace of God doesn't just save us, it also trains us. Verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. God's grace is not just a paramedic who revives our spiritual pulse. It's also a physio, a personal trainer, a gym buddy who helps us to build our spiritual strength. And in the rest of the passage, Paul tells us three things about this training. What grace teaches, when grace teaches, and who grace teaches. So first, what grace teaches. Last year, my niece learned to say yes and no for the first time. She's about 18 months old, or she was at the time. And so for a few months, we had lots of fun asking her all these different questions. Would you like to watch Peppa Pig? Yes. Would you like to eat your broccoli? No. In sort of the same way, grace teaches us to say yes to some things and no to others. But whereas my niece was not always the best at making the healthiest choices, grace always teaches us to make good decisions. Verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Note that it's both positive and negative. So negatively, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to say no to our rejection of God and his ways. But positively, grace also trains us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, to do good positively, as well as to avoid evil negatively. It's also both vertical and horizontal. So vertically, grace trains us to avoid ungodliness and to embrace godliness. Both words to do with how we relate to God and whether our lives reflect the worship that he deserves. But it's also horizontal. Grace trains us to renounce worldly passions and to live lives that are upright, that serve other people that treat them with dignity and respect. Strikingly, Paul also repeats his emphasis on self-control. I wonder if you noticed that. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So we saw how important that self-control is last week. And once again, Paul emphasizes its importance when your mouse is hovering over that website again. Or your housemate has done that thing that really winds you up and drives you crazy. It's self-control that helps us to say no to ungodliness, no to anger, no to lust, 
And yes to righteousness, yes to kindness, yes to good works. That's what grace teaches us to do. But how does grace do it? How does grace teach us? For that, we need point two, when grace teaches us. We've spoken already about the grace of God that appeared in Jesus. But did you notice there's another appearing in the passage in verse 13? Not the appearance of grace, but the appearance of glory. Grace trains us as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. God's glory is his royal splendor, his divine majesty. And just like God's grace, it's focused on Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. Notice that it doesn't say the glory of our great God, comma, and of our saviour, Jesus Christ, as if they were two different things. It says the glory of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ, i.e. our great God, who is our saviour, Jesus Christ. It's an explicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus. And so you can show it to the next person who tells you that the Bible never says Jesus is God. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that all God's glory, all his splendor, all his majesty, it will all be made visible on the day that Jesus returns. And so the whole of history, from the first century AD to the last century AD, it's all sandwiched between these two appearances the appearance of grace when he came to seek and to save the lost and the appearance of glory when he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring his new creation in. And knowing that we live between those two appearances trains us to be godly now. Earlier this summer, Hannah and I went hiking up a mountain on the Isle of Skye. And from the bottom, it didn't look that high. And so we thought, you know what? We'll leave the water in the car. We'll just have a drink when we get back down. You can probably guess that was a big mistake. (laughs) By 10 minutes in, we were already pretty thirsty. By about halfway up, we were absolutely gasping for a drink. But we didn't stop. We kept going. Because we knew it would be worth it for the view at the top. And so too with our godliness. We know it will be hard. We know it will take time and effort and sacrifice. We know it will mean battling with our flesh. But grace trains us to keep going to the end by telling us how good will it be when we get to the finish line. When Jesus comes back, when the glory of God appears, grace trains us by pointing us to Jesus's return. And that's not the only way grace trains us. It also points us to Jesus's death. And so thirdly, who grace teaches us. As Paul says in verse 14, grace points us to Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. Now that language of Jesus giving himself for us is the language of substitution, of dying our death in our place. And verse 14 tells us that Jesus did it for two reasons. To redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us for good works. So first, Jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness. One of my least favorite things about the summer is flying on those budget airlines. Don't you just hate those little plastic bags that they give you to squeeze all of your toiletries into? But imagine you are sitting on one of those economy class flights with Ryanair, your legs sort of squeezed up against the the seat in front of you. And then one of the cabin crew comes and tells you that you've unexpectedly been upgraded to first class with British Airways. You wouldn't stay sitting in economy class for long, would you? And Paul is kind of saying the same thing here. Jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness. To redeem means to purchase from slavery, to pay the price for someone's freedom. And when we were slaves to sin, condemned to a life of serving those same sinful passions, Jesus paid the price for us to be set free, to be welcomed into God's kingdom, to be given his spirit to sanctify us. So why, when Jesus has paid the price for our freedom at the cost of his life, would we go on living in the same old sins? Jesus has paid for us to leave those ungodly habits behind. He's paid for us to upgrade to a better life, a happier life, a more beautiful life. So why would we want to stay in economy class? carrying on in the same old sins when we could be in first class living the godly life that we really want to lead grace trains us by showing us that jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness secondly though it also reminds us that jesus died to redeem us for good works verse 14 to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we're used to the idea that Jesus died to save us from something, aren't we? We're less used to the idea that Jesus died to save us for something. And yet Paul says it's just as important in the school of grace. So go back to the airline analogy. And imagine you'd been upgraded to first class, not just because of a random freebie out of the goodness of Ryanair's heart, but because you'd just been discovered to be the true heir to King Charles III. I know it's a stretch, but work with me. Wouldn't you start to carry yourself a bit differently? Wouldn't you start to act like the next in line for the throne? To behave like a member of the royal family should? Because verse 14 tells us that that's who we are, royals. Not in King Charles's family, but in King Jesus's family. A people for his own possession. In the Old Testament, that was the, the special designation given only to Israel to mark them out as God's chosen people, his royal priesthood. A people who would live lives that would adorn the gospel and draw the nations in. 
And that's who Paul says we are because of what Jesus has done for us. If you want to be Israel, you don't need to get circumcised like the false teachers say. You don't have to keep the purity laws and avoid certain foods. All you need is Jesus, who died to make us his holy people, a new Israel, set apart for good works. And as we reflect on that, it trains us to live a life that fits with our new identity. So can you start to see how this gospel produces godliness in our lives? Not through rules or religion or telling us to just try harder, but through grace, which trains us to be godly by pointing us to Jesus' return, by pointing us to Jesus' death, to the fact that we've been redeemed from lawlessness, to the fact that we've been redeemed for good works. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we can just sit back and do nothing. Uh, just because you've hired a personal trainer uh, or, or, or asked someone to come and help you out at the gym, that will help you to build your muscles, but it doesn't mean that you will sort of automatically get stronger, does it? You can't just hire them and then expect them to make you stronger by magic. No, you have to actually go to the gym and do the exercise for their training to be effective. And so too with the gospel. It will help us to grow our godliness, but we still have to get that gospel into our minds. We can't just sort of sit back and expect it to make us godly by magic. And so think about physical training. What helps to make it most effective when you do it regularly, when you get into good routines, when you do it with other people? And so too with training and godliness. It works best when you get into the habit of preaching this gospel of grace to yourself, when you do it regularly throughout the day, when you do it with other people who can help you and encourage you and remind you of God's grace. Not for the sake of keeping rules, not for the sake of making yourself something that you're not already, but simply for the sake of meditating on what God has made you through Jesus. And as you do that, grace will train you to live the godly life that God calls you to live. We had a friend round for dinner on Monday who used to teach at a school over in Mayfair. And he confessed to us that while he was working there, he always used to feel really tempted to start chasing after that kind of lifestyle for himself, or to use his money in a not very self-controlled way in order to get that for himself. And the way that he fought that temptation, the way he trained himself to be self-controlled with his money and with his life aspirations, was simply this, to preach to himself every day as he cycled into work, using a verse from the Bible about how much Jesus had done for him or how wonderful it was to be part of God's family or how much better he would be in the new creation when Jesus returns. And that's how you train your life. Not by just trying harder, not by adding rules and religion, but by meditating on the grace of God.
I was chatting to someone else at Summerlink on Wednesday, who said they'd been going along to a, a Russian Orthodox church. And it was all do, do, do for hour after hour. Stand in the right place, kiss the right statue, say the right liturgy. Then he came to a Bible teaching church where he heard about God's grace. And he said, half an hour there helped me more to know God, to live a godly life, than all of the time that I spent in a Russian Orthodox church, keeping all those rules. And I wanted to say, of course, of course it was. Because it's grace that saves us, that brings us into God's family. And it's grace that trains us to live the life God calls us to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, why don't we pray that God would help us to do that? Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for your grace, which has saved us, and which is training us. And we pray that as we meditate on it this week, you would produce godliness in our lives and help us to be a people who are zealous for good works. In Jesus' name, amen.